Good morning, everyone. If you would, open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in our Sermon on the Mount, learning about life in the kingdom. And we've reached the end of the first chapter. There are three chapters that comprise the Sermon on the Mount. And we have already been hammered again and again by these words of Jesus. And I say that because, you know, nobody really, if they're honest, likes to have the depths of their hearts revealed to them. Nobody likes to see their true motives for the decisions that they make when it comes to anger and lust, to our thoughts of others and truth-keeping. Even retaliation last week. I was particularly ministered to uh, by both Chris Reed in here and Colin Hughes over in the Hub as I heard both of those sermons. Those brothers handled the word well and helped us. But nonetheless, I felt, again, rather hammered. But I would rather be clobbered by the Lord's hammer than any other hammer. Because the Lord works out in us his will through his word. And that's what he's doing again here in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You know, perhaps now, more than at any other time in my lifetime, are lines being drawn between people. On the one hand, you've got people who define truth one way, and on the other side, you've got people that define truth another way, and both aren't right. But what ends up happening is when you find yourself at the polar opposite end of somebody else, it's very easy to write them off. It's very easy to just not think about them at all. And if you do, usually it's negative things that come to mind. I thought how this is amplified and magnified on a national scale over in the Middle East right now and how lines are drawn between people who are saying one thing and people who are saying another thing and the conflict that has erupted and the many lives that have been lost. It's sad. It's sad here in the United States that even people interpreting those events are landing on one side or another and great conflict is erupting of a different sort on ideological lines. And we need to see a text like we have in front of us this morning, Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, as not a commentary on stuff that's happening out there. You know, as I've read these verses this week on loving my enemies, I've thought, well, how do Israeli people love Palestinians right now? Or how do those people who are protesting on opposite ends of college campuses across the United States, holding Palestinian flags and Israeli flags, love each other? God woke me up in the middle of the night a few nights ago and convinced me that I don't like this text very much. <laughs> because it doesn't allow me the freedom to kind of respond the way that I want to in moments when I face an enemy. And I have learned more times over and over again this week that this text is primarily not for regulating what happens and policing what happens in the lives of people out there. But it is a microscope that digs into my heart and yours this morning to reveal what's in our own hearts. And the challenge comes to us to live out the costly love 
that's here in this text. And that's the title of the sermon this morning. It's Costly Love. Let me just pause and ask you to bow your heads. And I want to pray right now that God would help us because this is one of the most challenging texts, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. And let's ask him to work out his goodwill. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing around the world. I pause to give you praise. There is great conflict around the world as nations divide and unite one against another. I pause to remember that you are in the heavens and you laugh and you defy those who would defy you and you urge them to kiss the sun lest he be angry. Lord, we are all subject to you this morning and to your words. Lord Jesus, you are not powerless. You are all powerful. As we have just sung, all the praise goes to you. Your power extends even to raising people from the dead and from rising from the dead yourself. So I pray that you would minister to us through this passage that you spoke on the mount and that we would see your love for your enemies and that we would count the cost ourselves and that you would impress upon us your will and that we would be changed, that we would be transformed. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture. Help us to worship you and to love you and obey you through it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the, the main theme is just this. Whatever love we share points to a greater love that came to us at a great cost. There's no denying that through this text this morning, we're going to see that there is no amount of love that we can display that hasn't already been displayed by God through Christ for us and for our sake. And so the theme reflects that title, Costly Love, because we reflect this morning through this text on the costly love of God for his enemies. But we likewise take into consideration and account for what we need to display and how we need to give the same kind of love. In the first point this morning, and these are the three points, the command to love, the motive for love, and the standard of love. I'm going to spend more time on the first two, quickly on the third. But let's get right into the command. Look again at verses 43 and 44. I'll read that for you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As we've seen Five times now, five other times, Jesus speaks the words, you have heard that it was said, or it was said. And for context, Jesus established in verses 17 to 20 why he's been doing this. Remember that he said that his righteousness that he requires of his kingdom citizens exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they were the most religious guys around. To exceed what they were doing was unthinkable for the average Jewish person that would have been listening to this, to think that they had to display more holy living than those who dedicated their lives to holiness just seemed impossible. 
But Jesus then gave several illustrations to help them understand what he meant by that. And here's what it always boils down to. The Pharisees and scribes were taking things that were from the Word of God out of context, bringing them to the people and presenting them in such a way that they removed some things and they added some things, all in the attempt to make obedience to God something that was manageable, something that could be done. And then once done, you could say to God, look how holy I am. I have obeyed you and I have kept your laws. Like the guy who was praying, the Pharisee that was praying in the temple in the parable of Jesus. Lord, thank you that I am not like other people. Right? The the Pharisees were very good at this. But I, I think if you're honest, you've been seeing all along that that's true of you and me too. We are good at that too. We too can say, well, God, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so, or thank you that I am obeying and doing well, and thank you that my life is so good, but instead, we ought to recognize that there's still work that the Lord is doing in us, and Jesus, through this text of Scripture, He gives us the command, but here's what He seeks to do in this one, like He has any others. He wants to clear up the misunderstanding. Love your neighbor was the law of God. And if we go back and we read it in context, which we won't now, you would hear it like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's no command there to love yourself. The Bible never commands that, but it assumes that we do. And it elevates the love of neighbor to like the highest level of love. You're here this morning because you put yourself together and you didn't want to appear, most of you, like you did when you first woke up. So you made yourself ready to come to church, right? (laughs) Didn't expect it to be that funny, folks, but it's true. You came to church because you took care of yourself and you made yourself ready to come here. And God, he just knows that we're going to take care of ourselves in that way. And he elevates the love of our neighbors to that level of as you care for yourself, think about others in that way and care for them too. But there's another part of this that's in what the people have been hearing, and it's this, that you are to hate your enemy. You're to hate your enemy. And that is not in the law at all. So where did this come from? On the one hand, we do need to understand something. When the people read in the Old Testament certain things, they could conclude, rightly, that God hates evil and that he even hates the evildoer. Take, for example, Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So right there is a statement of truth about God. God himself hates evildoers. And the people would read that, and that was a part of the conclusion that they made. Right? If my neighbor is the person that's around me, maybe in my home, maybe next door to me, maybe in my community, that are like-minded, I'll love them. But if God hates evildoers, then certainly it must be right for me to hate evildoers as well. People would read as well Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. These are the verses we typically skip in Psalm 139, by the way. You know, the beginning verses are about how God is with us 
underneath us, around us, if we would go to the darkest places or go into the highest heavens, he's there. But then verses 21 and 22 say this, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now that's staggering when you read about it, and, and it's probably apparent why we skip it usually when we read Psalm 139 to other people or in context talking about the sovereignty and the providential care of God. But that is King David's response as the leader of God's people to the enemies of God. Notice the enemies are not his own personal enemies. The enemies are the enemies of God. And he is so enamored with God that the overflow of that is that he can't fathom anything separating the people of God from God. And he wants all who try to be done away with. But even he is not so certain that his motives are all right because right after that he prays, so search me, O God, and try my heart and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, David instructs God's people to respond to evil in a certain way. And I want you to hear this this morning. Evil certainly should be hated. Romans chapter 12 tells us, cling to what is good, but hate what is evil. So even the scripture doesn't call on us to condone evil and to pretend it doesn't exist. Scripture doesn't tell us to be kind of blasé about it and to step back and not care. No, the people of God, among all people in the earth, are redeemed. And because of that, they're in the light and they can feel and see things that are in the dark. They, they recognize it for what it is. And it causes a revulsion in them. But here's what we find out. These examples in Psalms are unique. They are helping us as a people of God altogether, not as individuals, to recognize there is evil in the world and it needs to be hated. But as individuals, as we process these things, like last week we learned, we're not to retaliate when someone does evil to us, right? Negatively, we could say, we're not to lash out, but we're to receive it. And this week in the text, we're learning that in addition to receiving the backhanded slap and receiving the insults and receiving the load of work that's heaped on you, you take a step in and you actively love. That's hard. Jesus wants to clarify the intent, and that's the second thing that he tries to do. Love, we learn, is not a feeling in your chest. Love, when he says love your enemies, is not primarily the feelings that you have for your family members, for your spouse, to, you ki to your kids, your grandkids, a brother or a sister. It's not that kind of love. Jesus is not unrealistic. He's not telling us to have those feelings of love for an enemy. This word love is the Greek word agape, and it's describing a love of will. It's an act of the will. It's a disposition of our lives. It is a decision to do someone good, regardless 
of who they are or what they have done. Another word that Jesus clarifies, in addition to love, is neighbor. He clarifies the word neighbor. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer, you may recall, asked of Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? You know, he'd come and ask Jesus, what are the greatest commands? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. And he said, well, it's to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you said, well. And the young man said, well, who is my neighbor? And I think that's a question we all tend to ask. Well, all right, well, who is it that I'm responsible to love? Jesus' parable revealed that of those who passed by the injured Israelite on the road, the only one who stopped and helped him was the stated enemy of Israel, the ideological opponents, the religious opponents, the Samaritan. The Samaritan stopped, picked him up, and helped the man get to an inn, provided for his needs, and paid for him. And then Jesus then turns back to the young man, and he says, so tell me, who was a neighbor to that man? And I can imagine the guy gritted his teeth and said, the one who helped him. Right, so there was something happening in the heart of that guy that Jesus wanted to expose. And he wants to expose that in us so that we can change. Our tendency is to see our neighbors only as those who agree with us, as those who are on the same side with us, those who share viewpoints with us, who maybe dress like us, think like us, look like us. But Jesus redefines it. He takes neighbor from its context and says, you know, a neighbor even includes those that you would think of as an enemy. Jesus wants us to see our neighbor as the person in front of us who is in need. Even enemies, I think we will find out this morning, have needs. Even enemies are not so thoroughly put together. See, the thing about an enemy is that they present themselves as very big. They present themselves as threatening. They present themselves as in control of you. But there is a way that we can recognize all those things as false. And this is typically a time in a Bible study when the people gathering around the teacher would say, well, Jesus says to love your enemies, but how are we supposed to do that? And I think the clue here is to pray. The way forward is to pray. What happens when we pray, because Jesus says to love your enemies, we need to pray for those who persecute you. What happens when we pray? Well, the first thing is our perspective changes. When you and I pray, and when we actually submit ourselves to talk to God about those who are hurting us and opposing us, maybe persecuting us, our perspective changes. We go from thinking that the bully is big and in charge to seeing God big and in charge. Consequently, we don't stop fearing our enemy, but we don't see him as so big and in charge anymore. And we begin to think rightly that our God is actually the one who ordains everything that happens to us. I've thought of this this week. 
It's true that each of us are invincible on this planet until God determines that our time is up. Not even an enemy can come against us and threaten us if it is outside of God's time and if it is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of God's control. Our confidence in Him is that we approach a God who is sovereign and who ordains our steps no matter what happens to us, even if everything is stripped away from us like that. There we go. (laughs) And we find ourselves suddenly that we have nothing but God, we will find that He is everything. But sometimes our circumstances change. It could be that God uses our prayers to change our enemy. And this has happened. I can think of stories, especially during World War II, of missionaries who were kidnapped by the Japanese and prayed for their captors, and their captors were softened. Their circumstances changed, and people had the opportunity to see, even through prayer, that God showed the enemy that he was bigger, that God made things happen that the enemy decided there is no category for, and therefore, where there was no room for God, suddenly now there is room for God. But I think the biggest thing that changes when we pray is is us. Our hearts change. One of the things I've learned from Christians who are taken into captivity is that no one wants to love an enemy. No one. But you can't go along praying for an enemy before you feel your heart changing towards him or her. On May 27, 2001, New Tribes missionaries Martin and Gracia Burnham were kidnapped in the Philippines by Muslim terrorists. For the next 376 days, the Burnhams were dragged through the jungles. They survived 16 gunfights. But on the 17th, Martin was shot and killed, Gracia was wounded, and she was rescued on that 376th day. They were forced to witness countless atrocities acted out by the terrorists on other communities. Jungle living was brutal, and Gracia was just a homemaker and a mom to three kids who had gone out with her husband to help him on a missionary journey from one area of the Philippines to the other. And for their anniversary, they decided to go to the beach, and from the beach, they were kidnapped and taken away. Pay attention to a portion of what Gracia said happened to her heart during that year. She said, I think the hardest thing about being held hostage was that I saw what I really was. In one swift moment of time, everything I had except Martin was taken away from me. And when everything is gone and you're in an uncomfortable position to see what is really in your heart, what I saw in mine was not pretty. I had always prided myself that I was a pretty good person. After all, we had left the American dream to go overseas as missionaries, hadn't we? But in the jungle, I came face to face with a Gracia that I really didn't want to see, a me that I didn't want to believe existed. I saw a hateful Gracia. There were times that I really hated those Muslims for what they had done to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I saw a covetous Gracia, When we were starving and I saw someone with food, I would covet what they had. I saw a despairing Gracia. Nobody cares about us anymore. 
This has gone on for so long that everyone has forgotten us. When you and I are abused by others, and it doesn't even have to be taken away from everything we have into captivity for more than a year, we see some of those same sins revealed in our own hearts. And what I would want to encourage you with this morning, my friends, is even as this text weighed on me this week, that you would allow it to weigh on you and to acknowledge that maybe the enemy's in your house. Maybe, maybe they are in your house. Could be that your enemy is your own family member, a spouse or a son or a daughter. Could be someone in your, your office. Could be someone in your neighborhood. It's awful to come into a place that you thought was secure and safe, but find that there's sin even there. And the sin is something that you and I bring with us wherever we go. God in his grace will do what it takes to reveal that for your benefit so that you can repent of it, so that you can change. What we find is that we're not as good as we thought we were, but we can find that God is better than we ever dreamed. You know, Gracia, 20-some years later, had the opportunity to contact some of those men who had kidnapped her, 23 of whom were sentenced to maximum security prison for the rest of their lives. They would never get out. And through missionaries who were there in the Philippines, Gracia was able to send materials, Bibles to them. And to this day, four of those men have come to Christ. And she said she never would have thought when she was praying for those men that any of them would come to know Jesus. But some have. This is what she said happened back when she thought of all that God was doing. She said, God and his faithfulness began to change me. As the months rolled on, we began seeing our captors as the needy kids that they were. My hatred was replaced with concern and even love for them. Contentment and joy began to grow in my heart as I began acknowledging God's goodness to me on a daily basis instead of looking at the trials. God never leaves us as he finds us. And I am so glad for his work in my life during that year. Now, in many ways, it's like the song that we heard this morning for the first time here. Whether, whether we're having a good day or on our worst day, we are a child of God. And the reality is that our lives have been changed and are continuing to be changed by God no matter what our circumstances are. Friends, you and I may not be kidnapped and held hostage for a year, and I pray that that does not happen, but Gracia's story teaches me that life could be upended in a moment by a violent enemy. If you have no means to defend yourself, if you have no way to escape, you can learn that you are always in the presence of the Lord, and you can appeal to Him, and there is nothing happening to you. There's nothing that will happen to you that is outside of his control. And you can turn to him. The worst thing that we could do is conclude if an enemy ever gets the upper hand and ever has seeming control over us, the worst thing we could do is to deny God and to pretend that he is suddenly powerless. It may be that through your difficult time, he may put you in a place where you can win someone, your enemy, and his enemy to him.
And that's where we turn to the motive. You see, Jesus knows that this is hard. And he wants to help us with two things. The first is a reality, a statement of fact. And the second is a question that he asks us. Here's the statement of fact. You are children of the Heavenly Father. You are children of the Heavenly Father. Verses 45 to 47 say this. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, note that, his son, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You are children of the Heavenly Father. Jesus doesn't say that if you love your enemies, then you will get the privilege of being the children of God. Now, through the, the Beatitudes that he gives, he talks about all of those things that characterize a follower of Jesus. And the follower of Jesus belongs to God. We recognize we have nothing that we bring to God. We hunger and thirst for him. We're eager for him. We want to see him. And he purifies our hearts from the inside. So we don't have to work to get the treasures of heaven. It's really the opposite. You know, the treasures of heaven are ours. So from that position, we are free to love. And in doing so, we're showing the world, this is who my family is. This is what my father is like. You know, I, I love the fact that every one of us, no matter what kind of dad we had growing up, now have a father who is the best. I mean, like, everyone wants to be able to say in a fight, when you get into some kind of squabble, like imagine a, a, an elementary school fight on the playground. Kid knocks another kid down, and that kid gets up, and one of his best threats that he can give is like, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> you know, we just have that in us. We want, to, we want to sick the strongest person we know on that other person who's hurting us. And one of the, the cues that we get from watching dad is that he can do things that we can't do. And in this case, what we learn about our Heavenly Father is that he loves in ways that we can't love. What he does for his enemies astounds us, and we don't even see how it's possible to do that. But by his grace, he can transform us to do it. It says that he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Imagine... In town, a man who is trying to raise his family, he's trying to live righteously, he's protecting his wife and kids, he loves them. And then there's a man on the same street who's secretly committing life, a life of evil, who is not caring for women, but raping them, who's trafficking children. These things happen. And God sends rain and sun on that same street. And he blesses because he is a God of benevolence, meaning his will is good towards people. And he's a God of beneficence. That means he does good to people. This is who our God is. And we take a step back and we wonder, 
How can you do that? When we remember that it was us who initially were enemies of God. Every single one of us, whether we were ignoring God or cursing God, and somewhere on that spectrum, were positioned before we came to Christ as the enemies of God. And God was making his sun rise on you to warm you and to make your crops grow so that you could go to the grocery store and buy them. And he was sending the rain so that you could be provided for and you could have water to drink and bathe yourself. And you didn't thank God one day in your life until Christ came and you saw what he had done for you. God is loving people all the time that don't give him the time of day, that reject him, that hurl insults at him or write him off as irrelevant. Yet God in his love continues to provide for them. And so when we are doing that to people who have hurt us, when we actually seek to provide for them, you know, Romans chapter 12 and Luke chapter 6 is kind of an expansion of this sermon, one from Jesus, one from Paul. And the way that we love others who hurt us is actually seek to do something good for them. When they hurt us, we don't seek to retaliate. When they reject us, we don't ignore them. We still go to them, and we seek to get to know them, understanding that they are people made in the image of God who have needs, the greatest of which is that they will be reconciled to God. And God maybe has put someone right in front of you who may, even be, who may be standing in, in opposition to you that you have the opportunity to pray for, to do good to, and to love, not because you feel like it, but because you have the pattern of a God who does that, and you're in the family. You are the children of the Heavenly Father. But another motivation, and perhaps more powerful, comes to us by way of a question. And the question is this in Matthew 5, 47. What more are you doing than others? Certainly by now, you know about tax collectors. Jesus references them. They were the guys who were hired by the Roman Empire to tax Jewish citizens and to exact the tax that the Roman Empire wanted. But on top of that, the the tax collectors could gather a little bit more for their own sake and hold on to that. And they were despised by people around them. But even tax collectors had friends, other tax collectors. And they could hang out with them. Even, you know, in our day and time, it says the Gentiles greet those who are like them. I mean, we're surrounded by Gentiles of all stripes who don't know Jesus, who make clubs, who have gatherings, who meet in bars, who think of all the different ways to get together and to hang out and support each other. And what we see in this text is, if we do the same, if all we do is get together with people who are like us, if all we do is hang out with people who basically think and act and, and dress and do things that we do, that we're really no different than the people who we would esteem to be totally cut off from God, the very people that we think of as enemies. This would have really hit the Pharisees. The Pharisees 
would have looked at what happened and concluded, well, they do that, sure, but we're not going to mix with them. But Jesus' point was, if all you are doing is greeting those who are just like you and loving those who are in your own circle, then how is that exceeding any of the righteousness that's outside of your circle? If these unrighteous people are just like you, how are you righteous? Jesus elevates this love that we are to have for other people beyond what we typically think of and do in our everyday life. You know, this could be a neighbor that you have. It could be somebody who, you know, whether they throw trash in your yard. It could be somebody who doesn't like your vehicle parked the way it is. It could be somebody who opposes you or blames you for things. I've heard stories. I know these things happen. I've experienced certain things in the past. And the point is, Jesus would have us not write people off as troublemakers. Or even here in the church, there might be certain people that you greet on a Sunday morning, but others that you never go to because they're just cantankerous and stubborn and you don't like them. I don't know that you would call them an enemy. But could it be that you need to expand? Right? If it's hard to do it at your neighborhood, maybe start here in the church <laughs> and go to people that are not like you or that you don't like or that don't like you and find ways to greet them, to do good to them, to pray for them. How long are we to do this? In other words, what's the standard? And that's the conclusion to chapter 5. That's verse 48. Here's the news. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's, here's the thing with this. I won't dwell long on this, but here's what I found. A lot of people try to redefine perfect so it doesn't mean perfect. But here's the thing. Jesus said perfect and he means perfect. Now, is it possible that you and I can become perfect in this lifetime? No way. There have been some Christian, you know, like ways of thought and some Christian systems that have been put into place that would, you know, promote the idea that we could reach a level of sinless perfection. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Otherwise, why would Jesus have said in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes that we are to hunger and thirst as a defining characteristic after righteousness? We don't reach it fully but we eagerly lean into it. And why would he say in Matthew 6 coming up that we are to pray daily for the forgiveness of our debts against God? Now, we're not going to be perfect in this way. And other times, Jesus and through his disciples have said, be holy, as God says, for I am holy. He could have used that word here. I think that would have fallen a bit flat. Why? Because the Pharisees would often take that word holy and make it into a list of do's and don'ts. And as long as you don't do certain things and do other things, then bingo, you're holy. But our tendency as people is to make the standard not the absolute holy standard of God, but a system of holiness that kind of compares people with people. You and I will never have loved to the extent that we need to love our enemies, those neighbors, those kind of neighbors, until we see how God does it and keep growing to love like he does. 
Um, I think that one of the things the text tells us is how God does this. On the one hand, he greets people who are totally separate from him. And you and I might need to determine whether it's in your home, whether it's at your school, your workplace this week, your neighborhood, somebody that you can greet, you can just go up to, maybe they're so different than you, but you could go to them when you see them. Sometimes some people are hard to track down. You know, in the way that we live in our neighborhoods, I recognize we drive into our garages and we never look at each other. But it might be you could take a walk and you could greet people who you just don't like or know that don't like you. But you could initiate and say, how have you been? Hi. You know, civility, kindness, those are actually biblical bridges that we can cross in order to get to the love. God sends his son and rain on people every day. What can you do to make life a little bit better for somebody who has hurt you? Why would you do that? Because ultimately you're praying for that person to come to know Jesus. The same Jesus who on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing as they drove the nails into his hands. Stephen, who stoned, who was stoned for his testimony for Christ and for simply telling the truth, said, Father, do not hold this sin against them. We do these things, friends, because in the providence of God, in the care of God, in the love that God shows to his enemies, some of those enemies will be swept into his kingdom. And in the meantime, we don't just love those who are like us, but seek out those who have hurt us in order to show them a different kind of picture for what it means to belong to God and to know the God who loves and saves. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this text of Scripture. We are so thankful for you. You've commanded us to love even our enemies. That is so hard. But Lord, help us to greet them. Help us to do good to them in some way. Help us to pray for them. I pray that this morning you would transform us, that we would commit to pray, that we would see the transformation happen in our own hearts, and that we would see enemies not as opponents, but we would see them as our neighbors, and that we would reach out to them with love. Lord, you must do that work to transform us. What more can we do other than what the world already does? Lord, you must do that work to transform us. So please do that. Minister to our hearts even as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.